Hi, I'm Alan Miller, co-founder of the Together Declaration, and I'm really pleased today that we I'm lucky enough to be speaking to Nick Corbishley, who Nick, as many of you will know, is the author of this new book that's come out called Scanned, that's looking at digital identity, vaccine passports, mandates, and all the things that have led up to the question of digital ID over the last period uh, in a very comprehensive way. It's a really good read. Uh, so we're very lucky that Nick's with us here today. Just a little bit about Nick. Um, Nick's obviously an author, but he's a teacher as well. He speaks three languages and he spent a lot of time working with uh, news outlets such as uh, Wall Street and also for the blog Naked Capitalism. Thanks for being with us today, Nick. Thanks for having me, Alan. It's a pleasure. Everything's happened so fast in the last couple of years, but maybe not for the trained eye, if you've been looking at it before, like you begin to talk about in your book. In Britain, or recently, we've seen the end of vaccine passports domestically, and the mandate has been pushed away and they did a U-turn on it. But the question of digital ID is still very big for everyone. Set the tone, like you did in the book, about the relationship between vaccine passports and digital ID and why you think there's such a strong relationship between the two. Vaccine passports serve a fundamental purpose in the creation and the propagation of digital identity systems. They did so, I think, because they provided the governments with the opportunity, the possibility of setting up digital identity infrastructure, which has happened in dozens of countries around the world. Uh, so they afforded the possibility to do that. They also played a very important role in collective psychology, in my mind. They provided, um, or that they, they allowed governments to condition the general public to the idea of using their mobile phone as a means of entry, as an entry point into many, many different locations, venues, and as a form of access to basic services and basic amenities. I mean, one of the things that probably scared me the most about the last eight to nine months in Europe is how readily people, most people accepted this and just kind of like went along with it. I mean, like there was pushback in different countries. So, I mean, like you saw more pushback, I think in Germany, you saw more pushback in Austria, you saw more, more pushback in Italy. But where I live in Spain, um, we had vaccine passports like the UK for a very brief period. It was for about a month and a half, two months from December 2021. I went on a demonstration with my wife uh, about a week after the, digital, uh, the vaccine passports were implemented. And there were at most 2,000 people in that demonstration, in a city of one and a half million. People tend to go along with what is asked of them. We are obedient, we are compliant as a collective. This is what allows us to have societies. It's, it's what allows us to have governments, nations. And if people didn't conform and people didn't comply with basic rules, then you would have failed states. So, I mean, like this, this is a fundamental, fundamentally important thing. In any democratic country, you need to have uh, compliance on the part of the public. But this is where I think I stress in my book, um, this needs to be based on the idea of consent of the governed. People in a democratic nation have the power to say enough is enough, to say that this is wrong, this is a red line that you have crossed. And we've done this many times before in the past. Um, you could argue that 
the vote um, in the UK um, in favor of Brexit was an example of this. Governments have massively overreached. Unfortunately, in most countries, the response from the public has been largely docile. Can there be benefits for digital ID or is digital ID, in your opinion, just a problem anyway, in every way? That's the first question. I think most of the benefits end up being for the, um, I would say, government and corporations. Like, let's say, for example, the European Union. Brussels right now is in the process of uh, launching a digital identity wallet, and they are going to be pushing it very, very hard. Um, they are able to sell this as an idea that, you know, you will have just about everything you need online, as well as access to many things that you might need for your kind of like offline world. And you will be able to use this wallet wherever you go in Europe. Um, if you need to hire a car, let's say you live in Spain, you're going to Germany, you need to hire a car in Germany, it will make the process easier because it will be easier to validate ident your identity and all of these things. And you will have all of the, the ideas, you'll have all you need in one pack, everything related to your identity in one place. The problem is, number one, I mean, if I were to go down, what were the problems I have with this? We could be here for a while, but I'll try and do it as quickly as I can. So number one, security. Okay, so number one is how secure will that data be? One person I quote in the book who worked in GCHQ um, on the IT side, he said that the problem if you centralize all this kind of all this data, you are basically creating a perfect honeypot for hackers to, to come along and to infiltrate and to get your information. Second thing is it's likely to include your biometric data. That is something we're seeing more and more of. Um, most of the digital identity programs that I, I have um, analyzed have involved some element of uh, biometric data that is your most valuable personal data that you can have. If that gets infiltrated, then you are going to lose data you cannot change. So it's not like losing a bank card. It's not like forgetting a password. This is basically, you know, once that information is um, compromised, then you can't change it. So, I mean, I, that, that is a fundamental issue as well. I, a recent article in the Toronto Sun in Canada that quoted, um, I think her name is Anne Karuvikan. Um, I'm not absolutely sure. Oh, no, Kavorikan, I think it is. Um, she was the uh, digital commissioner for the territory of, of Ontario in Canada for three terms. So she served for many, many years in this role. She's had uh, other roles of, of, of serious import. Um, she, she said in this, um, in, in this article that she would not want to have a digital identity. So she's been working in this area for decades and she's a highly respected figure she said she wouldn't want to have uh, digital identity because she would not be able to guarantee that that information will be secure. I suppose there is an argument. If you have digital um, information, it can be processed much more quickly. So, for instance, health records, if it's mm -hmm. kept within the context of data processing by the actual health administrator, specifically mm -hmm. in your area for your health, it can be called up quickly and it can be addressed. Where the questions come in a lot more, it seems, are, are around the civil liberties and question of civil of your rights in terms of 
are they going to be utilized in terms of control or suffocating any of those freedoms in terms of movement and questions that you go on to talk about in uh, the new social contract and, and movement of people and also in terms of digital currencies, which is also something that's very big that people are thinking about. What you say is, is vital. I mean, like we've seen with the vaccine passports, especially in places like Italy, places like France, how they have been used to deny people access, how they have been used to exclude people. And I think that arguably one of the scariest things about vaccine passports and by extension digital identity is this potential to close off worlds for people who are not complying in all the ways that the authorities would like. The World Economic Forum in a report called Identity in a Digital World, a new chapter in the social contract, they admit that digital identity will, will be used to open up or close off the digital world for individuals. And we've just seen right now in Nigeria, we've seen how the government in Nigeria has shut off mobile fine use. I mean, 73 million people in Nigeria, which is um, well over a third of the population, can no longer make outbound calls from their mobile phone because they do not have a digital identity. Like you say, and like we've seen with the <clears throat> Canadian truckers, uh, people that gave money towards them, they had their account seized. And you talk a lot about <clears throat> what's interesting as well in India that people may be aware of, but for eight years there's been a project, 1.3 billion, that include biometrics by getting everyone into digital ID, Ardaha. Do you want to talk a bit about how it's playing out just there so we get an idea? Because in a way that's got duration and scale, right? The Adha system is, uh, is an, an interesting example. As you say, it's huge. It's the, the biggest identity program on the planet. Uh, it's one point, I think it's 1.3, or maybe it's just less than 1.3 billion people who are on it. Um, something like eight or 9% of the population are not on it. Um, those people are excluded from huge tracts of society from the economy in many different ways they, they are not able to receive government benefits and they are excluded as i said in many many different ways a lot of people would argue that adha the advantage of adha is, has streamlined bureaucratic processes in india um, it is helped to reduce the corruption that is inherent in, in local and kind of like regional national governments in the country. And some people do see positives, some people do see negatives. I think that the, the scary thing is like, you know, you have, you've already had hacks of some of the data. And so people have had their data compromised. And, and this raises serious questions. You know, if you, if you were to have a larger hack, um, you know, when you have that much amount of data in one place, um, it does raise serious questions. So, so, I mean, like India, I think India, one of the reasons India was um, a pioneer in this is because India has a very strong IT sector. So it had the kind of like technological nows to get much of this done, uh, although it was assisted in certain ways by organizations, um, foreign organizations. Um, and that is very much in contrast to many countries, for example, in Africa, which do not have the resources. So, I mean, like in Africa, there are dozens of countries that are having digital identity programs set up and they're almost exclusively being set up by um, foreign companies. 
And these are often companies in the military and intelligence and consulting sectors. Um, so it's like, I think one argument that can be made is that this is almost like a continuation of a kind of like a colonialism. And um, certainly the French and the English governments are financing, or the British government is financing a lot of this in Africa. When you look at someone like America, that's you've got the constitution and the idea of freedom, why do you think there's such disparities between somewhere like New York and somewhere like, you know, New York State and Florida and the different areas that you've seen? You know, you point out that, you, you know, you, you say that, you know, some of the democratic states have been the most draconian. But why do you think that's playing out that way? I mean, like, if you look at the democratic states, I mean, it makes sense that people who are left of centre are more concerned with the idea of protecting everyone from what seemed like a very, very dangerous virus. I think that because of their kind of like their social conscious, the idea of the collective good, and then people on the right are more concerned with individual rights, uh, liberties, and basically protecting the constitution. So, I mean, like, because in the US, everything is kind of like bipolar, you have two parties, you have this very divided country that, that is much more divided than it's been in a long time because of, I would say, what happened in 2016. One good thing in the US, because of the, the very clear checks and balances that were built into the system uh, by politicians who are clearly wiser than our current generation of the politicians, um, I think it's been much harder to push through a kind of federalized system, a, fe a federal system of, of vaccine passports, even though they are trying. They're trying to do it in all sorts of ways. What's your view as to why we've seen the different kind of things, particularly in places like I mean, France, Spain and Italy is really interesting. I mean, mm -hmm. and then Canada and Australia. I have my suspicions, but I don't have any way of proving them. But my suspicions is that Italy, because it's kind of like such an important country for the European Union because it's become such a difficult, has always been a difficult country to govern. The fact that it has a, um, a central banker, a former central banker, former Goldman Sachs banker in, in the role of prime minister right now. Um, I think that there is a clear uh, desire on the part of the European authorities to ensure that Italy doesn't get out of control. Um, it can't get out of control for the simple reason, economically, it is uh, a serious threat to, to the viability of the European Union because it has, I think, like the debt to GDP ratio now is about 160%. Uh, they, they've used much more draconian policies there than they have in Spain. Even though when you look at it, there's not actually been that much in the difference in the, in, in the rate of uh, vaccination uptake. As you say, you know, both the World Health Organization and the EU, they've done a deal with Deutsche Telekom. Mm -hmm. So that's to uh, both for vaccine passports and also for other things they're saying, as you say, for digital ID. That has consequences, certainly even in Britain, where we've kicked back vaccine passports and we've stopped the mandate. Even if you don't have the things we you've referenced already, which is the consultation on the digital ID for work and renting and other things, if we go abroad and we need to show those things, then they're all on a handset and all of that. It doesn't take a genius to realize that no. that's going to have an impact domestically as well. One of the things that most concerns me is, is the fact the World Health Organization is looking to 
recommend vaccine passports at a global level. Now, if that was to happen, that would mean that vaccine passports would become a universal phenomenon and they would become a permanent phenomenon. T-Systems, which is the IT arm of Deutsche Telekom, which already helped to kind of like make the different vaccine passport systems in Europe interoperable. So it has lots of lots of experience of doing this is now is being asked to do the same at a global level. So, I mean, it seems like that is the direction of travel that should concern us massively. The World Health Organization has been saying for since the vaccine passport question came up, we're not going to back these for a whole host of reasons. Not one, because they're going to they're going to exacerbate inequality. Poorer countries are going to suffer the consequences, et cetera, et cetera. And also, this is where it gets really interesting. We don't know how effective the vaccines are at containing transmission of this virus. Now, the irony is today we do know, and we know that they don't work very well. So, I mean, if, if the World Health Organization has decided to go in favor of vaccine passports at a time when clearly the vaccines themselves um, provide very little protection against transmission, then it does suggest that there's something else afoot. Number two, it's worth saying, and the World Health Organization doesn't have the power to enforce that. They have the power to recommend. Um, that could change if the global pandemic treaty, which is kind of like being negotiated right now, if that does happen, if there is an agreement at a global level to give the World Health Organization much more teeth to enforcing uh, policy, uh, health policy on nations. If that happens, then yeah, we have a really big couple of things to worry about. And I don't think people are really aware of that, or most people are not aware of that. So I'd say that is something that, that certainly people should be watching, because that, that's happening at a global level. That is above the nation state level. Um, and if it does end up that you know, the World Health Organization does get these extra powers, these additional powers, um, including potentially the power to sanction governments that don't play along, then, then we're in a very different kind of world. Um, and it's, it's worth pointing out the World Health Organization, something like 80% of its funding comes from private companies and private foundations. It does bring into question where its loyalties actually lie. I think people really would be interested to hear what you think about the digital currency. Is there a possibility of having digital currency without it being dominated by control? And can there be privacy and anonymity still with it? Or is there a way of doing it without just it being very draconian is the question, I suppose. In central bank digital currencies, um, this is another thing that I think most people are largely unaware of. It's something that um, over 100 countries are pursuing in one shape or form. Like, you know, so there, there are only three um, central bank digital currencies that have so far been implemented, as far as I'm aware. One of which, ironically, is Nigeria. I don't think it's coincidental that we have this kind of drastic draconian legislation being used in Nigeria, barring 73 million people from using their mobile phones at the same time as a central bank digital currency is being launched. And 
central banks around the world, like the IMF says, there are a lot of people who are playing a lot of interest in what's happening in Nigeria, um, including lots of central banks. We're looking at over 100 central banks, I think it is, that, that are paying an interest in this. And they include the biggest on the planet. They include the Federal Reserve. They include the Bank of England. They include the European Central Bank, the Bank of Japan. Basically, all the central banks of all the uh, G20 nations. So they represent 90% of the global economy. Uh, this is massive. This is hugely important. Um, I wrote an article recently uh, where I said that this is, essentially represents a financial revolution. Yet most people are unaware of it. Um, it's a revolution that I believe will favor, obviously, the central banks. Central banks will go from being like the, a massive intermediary in the economy to being like the, the overwhelming force. Um, it will put out of business, potentially it risks putting out of business a lot of banks because you're going to have a situation where the central bank is going to be competing directly with the banks they regulate, which is unheard of as far as I'm aware. I mean, like, it's very rare to have a regulator go into direct competition with the companies it regulates. So as well as having a, a bank account with Barclays Bank or with HSBC or whatever, um, each person in the UK will be able to have, if the so-called Bitcoin takes place, um, each person will have an account with the Bank of England. Now, what this means is that if you go through a financial crisis like 2008, where people begin to worry about how safe their money is in their bank, and you know the UK saw bank runs um, with Northern Rock, they saw many other institutions begin to have serious problems. So if you begin to have worries about just how safe the money is in the commercial bank, people will very easily just take their money out and move it to, to their central bank account. So that, that has a serious, that raises serious questions about the stability of the banking system. And I think more importantly, you asked me just whether or not these kinds of technologies can be used in a good way. Um, I think that it depends on who the actors are. So um, we have to ask ourselves um, how good a job central banks have done over the last 20, 30, 40 years um, governing the monetary situation of each economy. And I think there are quite a few people out there and quite a few economists who would argue that central banks have played a fundamental role in exacerbating wealth and income inequality um, by constantly bailing out the um, banks that end up getting in trouble by constantly bailing out. In, in the last crisis we had with the with the pandemic, with the arrival of the pandemic, the central banks around the world bailed out just about everybody. And when I say they bailed out just about everybody, they bailed out just about everybody that had a lot of wealth. They helped to create, engender another bubble in, in most of the assets that are held by those who have large amounts of money. So it's, it's pretty clear that their, their interest is not, I would say, the general public's interest. So, I mean, that that is a very serious concern if we're about to give these institutions um, unprecedented amounts of power and control over the economy.
What do you think now in terms of how you see things, where we are now, you would say about, you know, the role that citizens and others can play within all of this? We're going through a very, very serious economic crisis. We are facing inflation levels we've not seen since the 1970s. And at the same time, I, mean, I live in a country where there's 13% unemployment and we're likely to see stagflation come in uh, in the next few months. That means that unemployment is likely to go up at the same time that prices are going up. That's a hard time for people just to kind of like get by on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, I think number one, we need an informed citizenry. We need people to know what's going on. And this is really hard given the amount of um, bad information that's out there. I'm not going to use the word misinformation or disinformation. I'm just going to say bad information. And there's a lot of it about. And some of the worst purveyors, I would say, are, have got the biggest voices in the mainstream. And this is seriously problematic. If people are not informed about what is happening, there's no way that kind of the, the, the population, societies, it's much more difficult for them to take the right path um, and, and to hold their elected representatives to account. I think that the UK is, has done a reasonably good job in holding the government to account, uh, at least regarding vaccine passports, as you said, vaccine mandates. Um, I think that certainly there's been much more of a pushback than in some other countries. So I think that that, that should be a sign of, for, for optimism in my view and like I said in the book I think the US is going to be um, possibly the place where the last stand will take place um, because you have a large part of the political community who are opposed to the vaccine passports so it's um, I think that in most places in Europe opposition to digital identity and vaccine passports unfortunately at in the political institutions is relatively insignificant. Um, we need to keep people aware. I mean, like organizations like your own are doing a fantastic job. Uh, the Stop Commons Pass is doing a fantastic job. Big Brother Watch is doing a fantastic job. Uh, it's holding the feet of power um, to the fire, which is important. It's essential, it's basic, especially when those in power are trying to use whatever means possible to expand the power they have. For me, what digital identity represents is a, a massive di diminishment in the amount of not just privacy and freedom we have as citizens, but also the amount of power we have as a collective. And I think this is why it's, it is fundamental. It, it falls upon us to, to push back because we are the ones that, that are kind of like a model, I would argue, or other countries. I'm not saying we are perfect by any means. We've, we are not, we're not a great model, but we're a much better model than most other countries. I think it's a very, very important point. It's a great one to finish off on, that, that we're the custodians of, and many people have fought and died for freedom yeah. and democracy and rights. And you rightly talk about a lot of that in, in this book. So I, we really encourage people um, to get it. You can do it with us as well. We're going to be doing a special deal together for the book, you'll be able to see it. And we hope to be hearing and reading more from you, Nick. Thank you for sharing uh, your thoughts. Thanks for the work, the contribution. And we hope we can talk to you again uh, in the future. Me too. I mean, thanks for having me on. It would be a pleasure to, to chat again.